0: The frame that got in my mind was the entire world order is changing right in front of our eyes. You think about COVID impacts, inflationary pressures. I heard the energy commentator say ESG policies are actually affecting energy capability. That's that sustainability thing that's pulling capital off that segment. You got Ukrainian invasion, supply chains completely reinvented globally. You know, all that's being underpinned by massive global liquidity. So think about that picture as any one of us on the call, is related to how you choose to make investments. It's it's unbelievable. It's unprecedented time.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. Today marks the return of our CRE Executive Roundtable series, featuring in-depth conversations about the most pressing real estate-related topics with the biggest names in the industry. Our discussion today will detail the ramifications of the biggest ongoing story in the world, which of course is the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the volatility of several markets as things continue to unfold. We'll get updates on oil and gas from Mark Gunnan, president of Hunt Energy and Hunt Oil Company, We've got an update on shipping with Douglas D. Wheat, Managing Partner of Wheat Investments. And finally, our Vice Chair, Trey Morsback of JLL, will provide a Capital Markets update. You'll hear more about them in a minute when our Chair, Kim Butler of Hall Group, introduces them during the meeting. But first, please make sure you're subscribed to the show. We're available on most major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Please leave us a rating and review if you get a moment. We've also put many of our conversations up on our YouTube channel as well, and you can get updates Trek-wide on our social media pages. We've put links to everything in the description for this episode. Now, here's our first CRE Executive Roundtable of the Year, right here on TrackCast.
2: Well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Good morning, everybody. I'm Kim Butler with Hall Group and this year's uh, Trek Chair. Uh, So glad you all could be with us. The CEO call started, I believe, by you, Mr. Cawley, when people were starved for information and we were all isolated from each other. So I'm glad that we can meet now and have great programming in person. Uh, We have one next week, just FYI, a breakfast program to talk about the influx of people, the DFW area, and how those that are in the um, housing, the rental market are struggling and working hard to accommodate the demand for that, so I hope you'll join us there. Um, several of you have expressed interest in continuing the virtual uh, format when we have content that's relevant. I think this morning you'll find our speakers to um, provide really valuable information. I want to give a shout out to Lucy Billingsley for getting the ball rolling on this topic. Uh, those of you who know Lucy know that when she gets the ball rolling, it gains speed really quickly. So. Uh, Thanks, Lucy. Um, the topic today is um, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how that is producing market volatility. Um, I know the the conflict concerns us all on many fronts. Uh, first and foremost, the humanitarian crisis is tragic, and I know you all share my empathy for those many people that are uh injured, grieving, and uh displaced. The conflict also is having financial and economic consequences, and our speakers this morning will help us better understand how uh, it's impacting oil and gas supply and pricing, shipping and supply chain, and um, as we mentioned, uh, capital markets. Our first speaker, is Mark Gunnan. Mark is president of Hunt Energy and Hunt Oil Company. Uh, Previously, he was chief operating officer of Hunt Oil and responsible for the operations worldwide. Uh, He'll be followed by Doug Wheat. Has Doug joined us yet? Hopefully, he'll be followed by uh, Doug Wheat. Doug is managing partner of Wheat Investments. He's also chairman of the board of directors of uh, Seaways International, uh, Overseas Ship um, Holding Group, and AMN Healthcare Services here a little closer to home. And then uh, finally, we'll hear from Trey Morstok. Trey is Executive Managing Director of JLL uh, Capital Markets Americas, and he's also co-head of the Dallas office. And most of you know Trey uh, joined JLL as a part of the HFF acquisition. So thank you all for your time this morning. Uh, each gentleman will speak approximately 15 minutes. Uh, Christina, I'll be listening intently. So Christina has said that she'll give us a good old football two-minute warning. So uh, if you would wave when uh, we're about 13 minutes in and uh, so that we can stay on schedule. And hopefully we'll have some time at the end for questions. So uh, let's welcome Mark Gunning. And Mark, the floor is all yours.
3: Thank you, and can everyone hear me? We can great and uh thank you all for uh for having me. I'm really curious about the impact on the dallas uh, rental market. everyone we're trying to to move here. I get the first hand stories of that the uh um, and the one rule is no one can ask me about our building or our north end development the uh you have to pass those to to chris or lindsay maybe the uh, uh, so again, so just a, a little bit, I guess, about what we're seeing in Ukraine and, and, and prices. I to, to be honest, I'm not sure that the uh, prices today, other than maybe uh, emotional and financial sentiment, are are really that impacted in the oil markets. Uh, you know, by the conflict. In Ukraine, I think what we're seeing, you know, right now, particularly on the oil side, and I'll touch on natural gas, which is different, in a minute, uh, is, is really more of the impact of you know, structural underinvestment since since 2015. I mean, there have been since the uh, first sort of Saudi price war, uh, you know, that year, oil has you know sort of fluctuated in the 50 to 70 dollar range, other than obviously the very uh, bad negative pricing bad for us at least uh, and during you know 2020 um, and you know that's really resulted in a lot of pressure placed on international oil companies whether it's and and in your independence uh, in the us to know prioritize what you would think people would have anyway which is you know return on capital versus growth at any cost i mean in a lot of ways what we saw in the first part of uh, the last decade was you know not you know dissimilar to what you know i think all of us are old enough to remember in the 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 dot-com era where it was kind of growth at any cost without you know sort of thinking about business fundamentals like return on capital and and people were punished for that. You know, the private equity firms uh, got hit pretty hard with their portfolio companies. You know, returns to uh, you know, public investors were poor, uh, and that led, particularly, in not well in the public markets as well as the uh, the private companies to really, particularly the ones that were backed by financial sponsors, uh, to focused on you know what they should have been anyway, which are uh, you know traditional you know financial returns and that's led to uh, significant underinvestment you know other factors contributing to that obviously uh, is an increased. uh, You know, recognition of the uh, importance of climate change and energy transition and so you've seen a lot of pressure. uh, You know, put on financial institutions, not to. Uh, support the oil and gas business, and that's translated into a lack of availability of, of capital. Particularly, you know, much of our business uh, is is financed through you know asset secured loans, RBLs, um, and as you've seen, more and more started with the European banks, but it's expanded. You know, people drop out of that market, uh, that's put pressure on the size of those facilities. So if you know, by traditional metrics, for example, you should have, you know, be able to finance 65% of your approved reserves. You may not be able to fill out a bank group uh, with people who may, you know, maybe they used to would have hold, you know, $100 million tickets. They're now holding 50 or if they were the group that held 50 before they're holding 25. So it's just, it's just increasingly difficult to fill out those type of syndicated reserve-based loans. And that's, another thing that's contributed to uh, the lack of uh, supply so i would say that we would be in kind of the 90 to 120 range probably for the next 12 to 18 months even without the war uh, in ukraine and so i think what you'll see with the war and of course you know my predictions as good as the rest of yours as to whether we will you know, ban imports in, in, in Europe and elsewhere or see significant supply disruptions. But, you know, if you see that, I think most of the research that we're reading and, and certainly what we believe is you would see prices go to the point where, you know, it triggers demand destruction, you know, and that's somewhere in the probably 130 to $160 range, depending on your views of, you know, a number of factors. Um, they could spike above that and, if, and certainly if you see prices at you know 150 or above for any prolonged period of time that's going to destroy demand um and and bring down prices you know and at least some of the people we read um, you know think of course that combined with other disruptions uh, you know if it triggers a recession then you get oil prices probably back down in the you know 60s or 70s maybe um, but lots of volatility ahead. I mean, just to give you, you know, an example, when we were looking at some puts for some of our U.S. production, you know, sort of twelve months out, call it. You would normally expect to see, you know, kind of put premiums in the five to eight percent range. Uh, you know, a lot they're now, you know, twelve to eighteen percent just because of the volatility, you know, in the markets. Um, now I think gas is a different story. Gas, particularly in L liquefied natural gas prices, you know what you're seeing is uh, is, prob- is more directly related to the impact of the, the the war in Ukraine and and more the the fear of what's going to happen. But but we had even before the war started, we had historically high liquefied natural gas uh, prices. Let me pa- pause for a second. I don't mean to be pedantic, but I just realized that I'm talking not talking to oil and gas people. So <laughs> natural gas, you know, is the process where you you cool natural gas to negative 161 degrees Fahrenheit or excuse me, Celsius. And then you're able to put it on large. It shrinks the size of it, makes it more stable. And then you're able to put it on large ships and take it around the world, which is important because unlike oil, otherwise natural gas is only delivered by by pipeline so getting natural gas from the Gulf Coast of the US to Russia or excuse me to Europe obviously can only be done uh, by ship so even before the war on Ukraine you had prices that were you know 35 40 even spiking to 50 uh, you know late last fall uh, going into primarily into you uh, Primarily into to Asia, and that again was the impact of the combination of uh, underinvestment, frankly probably an over-reliance on uh, renewables in Europe, uh, and that combined with you know kind of a hotter summer, the the lack of willingness of European companies to buy natural gas in the off season and put it into storage so they'd have it available uh, for the for, for their winter season, because they were so focused on the energy transition, and so that saw higher prices but those probably would have uh, leveled themselves out. Um, but now the threat of you know we shut down Nord Stream to obviously Nord Stream one still flowing which is the pipeline from Russia to, to Europe. Uh, But people are you know terrified obviously that the because so much Russian natural gas goes through Ukraine that those supplies will be disrupted, either because of the war itself or that at some point. uh, You know, Russia will determine decide to cut off those supplies as a way of, of you know punishing punishing Europe and you know interesting fact that's been reported some but maybe not widely is that. Russia only gets 25% of its hydrocarbon revenues from natural gas exports. It gets most of it from oil. And so it could have a disproportionate harm on Europe compared to the loss of revenue, particularly at these high oil prices, where you, you know, it's still, you know, making making you know record revenues. So how so that's the
4: problem.
3: And I guess I would just, you know, add the 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 way to address it is going to be tough. I mean, in the in the oil markets, I think, uh, particularly in the U.S., you know, you could see six seven hundred thousand additional barrels coming out of, of West Texas by the end of the year. If people ramped up now, you could probably double that by the end of, of next year. Uh, but we, like everyone else, are facing you know massive issues and. And you know labor shortages, uh, supply chain, and particularly availability of steel—you um, know, which is necessary for you know to, to case oil wells, drill and case oil wells—and so there's there's not really the ability to just you know turn on the spigot and and do it. It's something that would ramp itself up over a couple of years. Uh, but I think we could we could significantly address the supply of oil within. You know, a couple of years with some with some effort if uh, you saw, you know, Russian oil completely uh, off the market. Natural gas is a more difficult story uh, because of the, the need to uh, export it by ship. We, we own a natural, a liquefied natural gas facility in, in, in Peru. Um, and, you know, those projects take internationally probably five to 10 years. Uh, you know, to build, um, and, and again, with the supply chain and steel and things like that would be you know, significantly more costly now. In the U.S., it would probably be easier, theoretically, because there's abundant natural gas and abundant natural gas pipelines, um, you know. However, and, and this is not meant to be political at all, just factual, uh, but, you know, within the last month, the FERC, which is the the regulatory body that regulates natural gas, basically, very simplistically, imposed new permitting requirements that cause in the environmental study for any uh, new LNG export facility, you have to include, previously you've had to include the environmental impacts from drilling the well up to sort of the tailpipe of your facility where you export it you would now have to include the environmental impacts of um, where that natural gas is ultimately consumed, um, which would obviously increase the the scrutiny, but I think more importantly, that's impossible to do because you, you don't necessarily know that it's going to go to a particular place in Europe every time and is it displacing coal? What's it being used for? And so this new requirement, you know, basically, as I'm sure you're all familiar with in your industries, um, would just lead to litigation. And so you you'd make your permits, and then even if it got approved, it would get you know tied up uh, tied up in the courts uh, for years. So it will be, I think, you know, absent some relaxation of those types of restrictions, uh, you know, new natural gas export facilities in the U.S. are going to be are going to be um, Tough to tough to conceive of. Um, one sort of, I guess, last little point. We also have a refinery in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and and it had as recently as two weeks before the war, uh, you know, bought a cargo of feedstock from 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 Russia. We that's probably the first one we we bought there in six or seven years, uh, but. I make that point because that refinery is, uh, that refinery is is like many of the finery, refineries in the US is configured to deal with nasty kind of sour crudes, which are different from the, the grade of crude oil that we produce in, the, in West Texas in the US. Other place, so Russia is a big supplier of that. Uh, Saudi is a big supplier of that. Venezuela used to be a big supplier of that, and there's some that you can get from from Canada, uh, and so it's harder to, for me to quantify the effect that that's going to have. But the lack of availability of these sour crudes, as we call them, uh, will have a continued impact on gasoline and diesel prices and asphalt prices. Where the where we we, I think, produce 20% of the roofing asphalt for the, in the Southeast out of our refinery. And that's more expensive to produce with, uh, with the types of crews that are that are more likely available to it. So there's all these second, third kind of tier uh, trickle effects that, that, that are kind of hidden from or just the headline you know, oil price or natural gas price. I think I'm about on my 13 minutes.
0: <laughs>
2: Great. Thank you, Mark. I have five
0: questions, but uh, do we have time for a question or two, yes. Kim? How are we doing? Can it? we
2: wait and save questions for the end so that we make sure that we get to hear you, Trey, and you don't get cut short? I see that Doug has joined us now. Doug Wheat, uh, thanks for your time this morning. Uh, if you, can you hear us? Can you join us and uh, give us a little information related to uh, shipping and supply chain?
4: Okay, but thanks. We can Kendall. hear you.
2: We can hear you just fine. Thanks, Todd. Great,
4: great. And I want to thank Lucy, of course, but who can say no to Lucy? So I'm glad to be here and glad to be able to share a little of my shipping knowledge. Not nearly as much as I think our previous speaker had about doing gas business, but I'll try my best. By way of background, I'm chairman of the board of Overseas Shipping Group, or OSG. It's a U.S. flag shipping company, or in more in particular, it's what they call a Jones Act company. A Jones Act company is got out of uh, out of uh, Congress all the way back right after World War One because they were worried about someone uh, attacking the U.S. And It's just not shipping; it's uh, airplanes. It's anything that you can't go from inter- international to a spot in the US and then go any place else unless you're a Jones Act. So we are one of only about five companies uh, in in blue water. There are a number of them in green water. Um, But anyway, that's what what OSG does. I'm also chairman of the board of a New York Stock Exchange Company, International Shipping Group. Uh, International uh, is, uh, uh, as the name implies, only does international shipping Uh, and there uh, it's dominated by larger ships or by product ships uh, that carry everything from uh, uh, crude or crude products to all the way down to uh, uh, cooking oil Uh, and those are used uh, uh, internationally as i said Uh, and we've been before the invasion uh, INSW. Uh, was uh, shipping a significant amount of oil uh, out of uh, Russia. Uh, to give you an example, our largest ship now is what they refer to as a VLCC, a very large crude carrier, which carries a million barrels of oil. And those are the, the ships we we're using to bring oil out of Russia uh, into other parts of the world, primarily China or the US. Give me an example. We um, did that throughout everything uh, until the invasion, and then we went through self-sanctions as well as the sanctions that were imposed. The self-sanctions were uh, important uh, because what they did, shipping is kind of a strange business, especially international shipping is, and how all this defies, Antitrust laws, I'll let somebody else figure that out. But in any event, we you have what's called pools. And uh, you take a specific type pool, like I mentioned, VLCCs, or we have AfroMaxes and SuezMaxes, and they each fit into a category. And then uh, uh, for obvious reasons, you try to lump them into a group and have a pool manager. And that pool manager is telling you basically where to take your ship or where not to take your ship. And uh, uh, the idea is, and how it came about, was to to eliminate or almost eliminate deadheading. Uh, So ships are a lot more efficient if they're in a pool. Uh, Also, it allows for uh, some consistency in pricing among ships, especially the very large ships. Um, And that has been uh, another factor that's gone into the whole uh, sanctioning uh, because when uh, Ukraine uh, was invaded and the sanctions started, um, the pool manager uh, would have liked us, for example, to continue to take oil out of the Black Sea. And uh, we said, no, we self sanctioned. But uh, the, the, again, how these pools work, you get points assigned to you. And if you don't basically do what the pool manager wants, They can cut your points and the points dictate how much revenue you get out of not only your ship, but everybody else's ships. Uh, So we said no. Fortunately, at that point, we had nothing in the Black Sea. We did have them in the Baltic, but they weren't carrying Russian uh, crude at that point. And at that point, the board made a decision. We were not before even the U.S. had sanctions. We were not going to continue to carry uh, Russian oil regardless of what the consequences might be. And that's, excuse me, and that's carried on uh, to this day. Um, But I wanna, um, what this means and the effect of sanctions, um, I'll speak of the effects of the interruption as well as I'll, I'll highlight a little bit on the supply chain because I think that'd be of interest to you all, especially because as uh, you see what's happening in Long Beach and in Los Angeles ports, um, it has an impact on any kind of imports uh, into the U.S. And uh, I assume you, like most people that are using imports, are getting delays. If I just look at buildings around here, uh, I live in Vacaro, and all the housing that's been built has almost come to a halt just because they can't get um, uh, uh, materials. Uh, in a timely manner, and that makes it almost impossible for them to go forward. Um, Fortunately, within the last two weeks, both the shipping companies that I'm involved with had our board meetings, and so we had experts of both to discuss this very matter we're talking about, and I thought I'd just briefly share with you the highlights of what they had to say, Uh, It's not very long, but I think it'll give you a better handle what we're trying to face in the shipping world, given um, what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, First, oil prices have spiked to flatten transportation fuel recovery. Recessions are looming, Uh, trading is skittish as ever. I mean, this is the worst kind of trading market we've ever seen in the shipping markets. And that also goes back to our previous speaker about oil oil is obviously dictates in large part um, how uh, necessary ships are depending on where they are and that sort of thing Uh, and I think that's going to be very difficult uh, and that's going to take the environment totally change the environment Um, there's also a lot of inflationary cost pressures in cost of this Uh, wages in particular uh, are a critical concern we have a number of both Ukrainians and Russians on our ships, um, our international ships, and which is a little strange, but we've tried to make sure everybody's getting along during this. And strangely enough, I don't think they even know what's going on. at least they act like they don't, which is pleasant for us. And uh, so that has not been as big a problem as we first thought it might be. Uh, But the inflationary cost, uh, and again, I'm gonna use the example of the ports in California, uh, I, I just read yesterday where a couch that used to cost $500, uh, to, uh, sorry, $50 to ship from China to the U.S. is now costing $500. And it's not like we're getting any more profit out of that. It's just that's what it costs to be able to sit out in the ocean uh, for that long and other things uh, for, the, for the stalemate that we have at the ports. Uh, U.S. sanctions, excuse me, on the Russian energy imports are still behind behind the curve. That's why self-sanctioning uh, in the markets are already essentially a stop the flow of Russian energy exports. As I said, we're not the only ones who are no longer carrying uh, because of the sanctions uh, oil. Uh, we're not aware of anybody right now of any of our major competitors, with the exception of out of India and China. They're really carrying much. Um, uh ukrainian uh, are out of the black sea that whole area all of the thing the russians are still avoiding that to a certain extent by going through the baltic uh and uh, there you sometimes have no idea because oil is fungible as we just as you Uh, previous speakers were saying, and because it's fungible, it's impossible to really identify it the way you'd like to identify it, but you take all the steps you can, and uh, you hope that's sufficient to make everyone happy in the long run. Um, And we don't know, all this is unforeseen obviously to us, and um, I think uh, we need to adapt quickly to change the circumstances and to make in-game changes And that's what we're working on currently uh, because it affects the entire uh, supply chain, as we've talked about, and also it affects how uh, we'll, uh, where we will be taking oil. Obviously, um, shipping uh, is a lot more beneficial and profitable the longer the ship uh, route. They call it ton mileage and how far you've got to go. And so it depends on what China's going to do vis-a-vis Russia. One and two, what India is going to do versus Russia? Because those have always been classic places for us to ship uh, oil uh, from uh, from any spot in the world, including the U.S. And then, as also we were were hearing about the U.S., the OSG, my uh, U.S. flag business, we're seeing more of that, and it'll continue to pick up. Because again you remember as I mentioned it can only go from point it can go from point A and point B at both those points being in the US So traditionally uh, Jones Act vessels have taken oil uh, out of uh, uh, you know ports like Houston and taken them up to the west coast uh, for refining or taking oil out of uh, Alaska and taking them down to the west coast for refining And that's only we going to pick up as we just heard. If we if we can increase um, um, our output from production uh, in domestic oil, that will do nothing but continue to increase that. Let me talk a second about the chain interruption. I mentioned the ca- ca- couch example. Um, this will apply to any kind of product. So as a developer or lessor uh, property, anything that you're going to get from overseas, and it's going to have to go again if it's if it's done here and it's going to go someplace else the least way the least expensive way of doing anything is by ship uh some people would let you believe it's rail but it's really ship and so if we're restrained from doing that in a efficient manner it's going to make it even more expensive for everything from lumber uh to toilet paper and uh we're seeing all those costs go up dramatically from a shipping standpoint uh, because it's just harder and there's only so many ships that can handle those kinds of uh, cargo uh, and stay within the coastal waters of the U.S. Uh, and also we're talking uh, again earlier he mentioned that uh, the steel prices have increased well they've obviously increased and you can only imagine how much steel Um, a ship takes to build. And for example, we've been doing a joint venture with Shell to produce uh, three ships that are dual uh, fuel. They can either run on crude oil or they can run on natural gas. Uh, And those are being built in South Korea right now, which South Korea is usually the manufacturer of all the really high premium ships. Well price of steel has escalated dramatically since we went into the agreement with them a year and a half ago. Uh, And we're feeling that pinch now because they've got escalation clauses as we finish the completion of uh, of those uh, vessels. Um, And time has changed. Everything we need to get as a shipping company usually comes and it's imported. And as a result, it can be tied up in a supply chain just like everything you all may need. that uh, uh, You're seeing uh, the, the lag times, whether it's building or anything else, but building in particular. Uh, I think we've determined that the Russian uh, invasion will last uh, more of a significant period of time than most people are projecting. And uh, with the adverse effects that I've just mentioned to you, that will put a strain on all types of shipping. Those again are coming a port A to point B uh, in the US and those that we're getting uh, internationally. Um, and we're doing everything we can to adjust to that and also to adjust the uh, situation from the uh, supply chain. Um, and um, I think that is gonna continue for some significant period of time. Again, uh, you know, I don't want to cut anybody else short, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, say at this point, I'm happy to answer any questions. And Kim, if you want to have them ask at the end, that's fine with me.
2: Great, thank you, Doug. We we will we'll have uh, we'll get uh, Trey on board so he can give us an update on capital markets, and um, then we'll have time for questions for everyone. Thank you, Doug.
4: Thank you, Kim.
2: Wow. Are you ready to roll? Uh,
0: yeah. You're going to give us good
2: news,
0: right? I, I want to be, I, well, I can't help but be optimistic. It's the nature of my personality, but I do want to dig in more about energy and, and shipping because I think those have effects to our business for sure. It's fascinating. I know so little about it. Um, what i have been thinking about when I'm listening to the previous speakers, and we all know this, right? But how it affects our business. The frame I got in my mind was the entire world order is changing right in front of our eyes. You think about COVID impacts. Inflationary pressures. I heard the energy commentator say ESG policies are actually affecting energy capability. And that's that sustainability thing that's pulling capital off from that segment. You got Ukrainian invasion, supply chains completely reinvented globally. You know, all that's being underpinned by massive global liquidity. So think about that picture as any one of us on the call is related to how you would choose to make investments. It's, it's unbelievable. It's an unprecedented time. Um, it just sort of hit me. But From a commercial real estate perspective, as I noted, I got to start and I tend to start optimistically because I think there's a lot to be optimistic about still. There are some disruptions, I'm gonna get to that. But I thought maybe best to start with just this one slide. This is a slide from our CMO that many of you have seen. Mark Gibson typically presents it here locally. Um, The red indicates things that we're in the middle of changing. So this is not even public. This is sort of iterative, right? Relative to what's happened. But the big step back picture is, and the title still remains true, Commercial real estate remains in favor because we've earned it over a long period of time. So the why is because we've performed. The why is because we've seen massive you know, rising allocations in commercial real estate globally, and in all of ours careers, the allocations institutionally in commercial real estate have gone from roughly two percent to like eleven percent. It's a five hundred percent increase just in the last twenty-five years. So a lot more sand in the sandbox, as we say. This fixed income rotation. This is basically investors globally saying my fixed income allocations think bonds aren't satisfying me anymore. And I need to move more of that out and into alternatives, real estate being the largest alternative. And the order of magnitude here is again, unprecedented. And this was long before the most recent events. This was a three, four, five, six year trend. The best example I give was Cadillac Fairview. Many of you know, uh, they partnered with Lincoln and KDC here locally. They're a $260 billion plan, Canadian plan, they move 15 to 20% of their entire plan assets out of fixed income and they want to redeploy them into alternatives real estate's roughly 50% of alternatives. So just think about that one Canadian plan is moving billions of dollars into our asset class they're one of 100 globally that are doing that, so. The, the, the wall of liquidity sort of in terms of real estate continue to be in favor is is very positive uh, i'm going to get to some disruptions here in a make because we definitely have. Them. um. The second one is where we're starting to see a little bit of changes, that second column. We do have record liquidity, I just commented on that. You know, record pricing, that was a 21 comment. No doubt, we came off an incredibly robust year last year. We had more capital, more transactions, more record pricing than we've ever achieved in our in our history as a firm and as an industry. But the red there is appropriate. And this is really in the last 60 to 90 days, we're, we're seeing moderation. Moderation really means flattening. Haven't necessarily seen pricing retraction yet, I can give you a couple anecdotes and someone on this call may have some for us as well. But big transactions are getting more acutely affected and we could talk about that, that has to do with the capital markets. So mega transactions, billion dollar deals that were in favor very quickly have gone out of favor because the capital and the debt side is not there. So seeing a little bit of pricing pressure on the big deals. Debt pricing, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on that when I kind of have some comments, definitely in a, in a period of volatility. And we're definitely seeing cost of capital increasing, I'll give you some specifics. And I mentioned the portfolio premiums are in question now. There are some that would argue that portfolio discounts now apply, and this changed in the last 60 days. Talk about quick shifts in sort of our industry. The good news on the right side, I'll stop at the participants column and I'll drop the slide. Everyone globally, all constituents of investors that won and have historically been in commercial real estate investment are all active participants. That's a sign of a healthy market. There has been no retraction. In fact, in the second column, you see overseas capital, We just had a big contingent of folks over at NIPM. For those that know that, that's a European, think of it like an ICSC or ULI over in Europe. All all global investors come together to talk about real estate. They all are basically signaling that some of their Eastern European and EMEA capital allocations may be shifting to the US because of the disruption. So if you think about order of magnitudes here, a lot of tailwinds still are working in our favor relative to commercial real estate investments in the US. We're not talking globally. We're talking about just the U.S. So, pretty pretty positive backdrop uh, for sort of what leads me into a pretty bumpy last couple of weeks. So, uh, I took a bunch of notes yesterday on our national calls, our weekly calls, Texas calls to kind of frame sort of what we're seeing because this is all happening real time. I mean, everyone on this phone call knows because many of you are participants. You're dealing with this real time. If any of you are in the market for a loan today. You're feeling it if any of you are in the market to sell assets you're starting to feel it so all this is real time so after a crazy record year in 21 first time in a while we've seen a real bumpy i'll call it volatility of turbulence and it's almost hundred percent focused in the credit markets what i mean by that is the debt markets so roughly speaking and i'm happy to give you some specifics roughly speaking we've seen debt the cost of debt capital for commercial real estate for industry across floating and fixed move about 100 basis points. So plus or minus 100 basis point delta. Some of that's in the indexes, be it so or the treasury, and some of that's in credit spreads. So we're seeing both widen at the same time. Most of you have been borrowing money in the last couple of years. You've seen three, two, three, four 4% cost of capital. Think about that. 100 basis points is 25% increase in your cost of debt capital. That's the bad news. The good news is capital flows are so robust that they're basically pricing through that. So we have the largest sale pipeline we've ever had. And to date, I can count the number of retrades. We're we're closing 17 deals a day as a firm. We've had five significant retrades in the last 30 days. So essentially the flow of capital is out pushing the negative effects of the debt capital. Now that won't sustain. You know, we are starting to see pressure in certain segments where you just simply can't pay 3.2 caps on core industrial and have negative leverage. Right. So that, that just flipped in the last 30 days where that cost of capital is starting to impact those pricing. So when I say it's iterative in real time, I mean it's real time. Like today could change the narrative I'm telling you this point. I mean, it literally is starting to flow through the business. I had a really interesting conversation yesterday with one of the largest investors in the world. You can I start with a B. Uh, and I asked him how you see the world. And I said, well, we had investment committee on Friday. We always are there to assess risk and make investment opportunities based upon time to calculate risk. And we all do that as professionals. But he said, for the first time in a long time, the risks that we talked about are all going the wrong direction at the same time. So normally you have offsets, right? He commented on inflation risk accelerating, Fed action and interest rate action accelerating, supply chain issues, which I heard both previous commentators accelerating in terms of risk profile, global political risk, accelerating and just overall uncertainty and volatility accelerating so rarely he said do we have the confluence of that number of risks all sort of pointing in one direction at the same time the backstop to that is we've never had more money to deploy so what do you do as an investment professional right so the punchline that i think we have today is we have pricing uncertainty with too much money to deploy so we have these conflicting issues investors saying i've never had as much liquidity to get deployed and more of my folks to continue to want to be and i don't know how to price risk so we have uncertainty risk premiums starting to embed into the market which is part of the credit spread side that i mentioned before you have people starting to talk about fundamentals which have historically been very very strong that may start to get frayed here in the us at the asset level i believe we're right on the tipping point in the next 30 to 60 days we're going to start seeing some cracks and it's going to be in more risky assets. And it's gonna be in assets that are more fringy is where we're gonna start seeing more pressure. And then it's gonna, if it continues, we'll start going down the scale all the way down to logistics and multi-housing, which today we haven't seen. So uh, there's a lot there. I will tell you we're early days for sure. As I mentioned, this could change by the afternoon, but incredibly resilient our industry has been performing. Capital's holding us up in terms of not having dramatic pricing shifts and, and, and swings at the asset level. I can tell you that credit spreads could rebound tomorrow if we have anything positive happening out of Eastern Europe. I mean, literally, we could drop another, we could drop, we could gain back 50 basis points in credit spreads literally overnight. So these things all could coalesce and change overnight, but that's, that's sort of what we're dealing with. And maybe the last comment I'll leave you with, again, happy to answer any specific questions, is in periods of uncertainty and volatility, one of two things happen. In our experience transactionally, people either stop and sit on their hands and say, I'm gonna wait. You know, I'm not gonna go sell my building. I'm not gonna sell my apartment complex. I'm not gonna make an investment decision. Or that concern or fear about what the future may hold accelerates activity. The latter is happening. Our pipelines are exploding. So you can call it a run for the door. You can call it people trying to exit. You know, when they see seen an inflationary pressures, there can be a lot of reasons, but we've never had this pipeline as big as we do right now as a firm, which is extraordinary considering we're coming off a record year in 2021. And we're not alone. That's just speaking from our, you know, from our our little firm. So, I'll stop. Hopefully, that was balanced because usually I'm too optimistic. I'm told, but there's a lot
2: out there. Now that was a lot of information, Trey. Thank you. Great. Sure. A lot to digest there for sure. Okay, I will open it up for questions. I know, Trey, you had had one related on the oil and gas front that I shut you off on, but uh, yeah, unmute
5: yeah.
2: unmute yourself and please ask questions.
0: Well, I don't want to preempt Avalon or Kali, because I promise you both of them have questions. I see Michael Levy in a tie too. For sure, he's got a question. He's coming in a tie today. I'll start. Just I was more curious because the what you see in the press and what you see all over relative to energy, going back to the energy commentator, you were commenting on there could be supply demand shocks at the plus or minus 140, 150 level. Where are we first going to see that? Like you know, obviously oil has uses all over the globe for all different kinds of things. I think about it the pump. So that's what's in the press most frequently is people talk about gas prices for cars. Is that where we'll see the pressure or is there other areas that that demand shock can present itself?
3: I think, you know, the oil barrel barrel has a lot of products that come out of it. It has jet fuel, obviously gasoline, diesel, then there's also things that are used in petrochemicals for example that that uh parts of the barrel or you know asphalt like i mentioned and so i think you know the most obvious thing that you'll see is i mean you know uber's already announced a pricing surcharge uh you know you'll see it i think most obviously in things like that and you'll see you know people you know driving less flying less and things like that uh but i also think you'll see uh, you'll see it in some of these Know, other products and using natural gas as an example, I mean earlier last fall, England shut down all of its uh, fertilizer plants because they were trying to conserve natural gas for you know home heating in the winter uh, and so it'll be i th- I think it'll be widespread, but the most visible place obviously will be will be at the pump uh, and but it'll be more hidden in these other products
0: uh, you a last comment, and i'll I promise I'll remain quiet. Um, Just an anecdote to give you a sense of sort of, well, it struck me. I have a 19-year-old daughter who is wonderful, but she hasn't been fortunate to not necessarily think about what she spends money on and how much it costs. She came into me, she was down for the weekend and she was heading back to college this weekend. And she said, hey, dad, can you refill my debit card? I can't believe how much it costs to fill up my truck now. Like my daughter comes to me and says, it cost me $70 to fill up my truck and it usually is $50 or $45. Now, she she's still going to fill it up. This is doesn't She's still going to do it either way. But the fact that even that constituent is now starting to become aware, I think it's going to start changing consumer habits, especially those that don't have the wherewithal. And it seems like it's inevitability. I have a
3: daughter that we're weaning off the the payroll and uh, she, for the first time last night, did not just drive to the Shell station in Snyder Plaza to refill her car, but drove down Lemon to find somewhere cheaper. That's changing habits already.
2: Changing behaviors. I need my daughter to be friends with your daughters. <laughs>
0: <For> <laughs> she sure. went to fill it up. She just asked the question. It started. It started. That's great.
6: Hey, Trey, I got a question for, sure. for you. First of all, you maybe you should buy your daughter an electric car, uh, but that's between you and me. Um, <laughs> um, so you guys advise clients all over the world and people are coming at you saying, so if I'm a client, I come to you and say, look, Trey, I believe that we're in for, you know, sustained inflation for, you know, the next year or two or three, whatever. Um, and uh, I think the Fed's going to react. The rates are going up. You know, Jay Powell yesterday was more hawkish than what he said. So, but I, I I'm going to stay invested in real estate. You know, because that's what I do for a living. You know, I'm not, I'm not a trader. Where should I deploy my capital? What sectors? What part of the country? What should I do with my capital in that environment over the next few years?
0: yeah i feel like you gave me a softball to tee up your business michael levy that's not fair um i I truly believe if you think about where you actually have fundamentals that can offset some of these inflationary effects that exist and i can tell you the connection we're hearing a lot there was a reference earlier one of the commentators talking about supply chains effect on housing and housing prices going up that's real in your family space so the, the shortage of housing is really a crisis issue in the United States. And I will tell you that if you're in the housing delivery business, where you can deliver housing, whether it's affordable all the way through apartments, through single family or SFRs, et cetera, the entire continuum, I believe you will be well positioned, which I know is a big part of your business, Michael. So I do think the all, all things housing, not to say that any of these things won't be affected by inflation, for sure they will, but they're hedged in a better way. And I actually think the demand curve and what's happening fundamentally is completely supportive and legitimate. And I hate to say it because it goes right to the institutional playbook for the last 24 months, but you can't ignore the logistics space. Again, same reasons. You have a completely reshifting in, of the supply chain globally. Of it, much of its onshoring, nearshoring on-shoring, near-shoring their inventory, changing their inventory patterns. Everyone is lur- looking to figure out a different way to continue business continuity. You can't do it if you're looking to get XYZ out of Korea. You have to have certain components closer to you. So this This move in logistics and where it's headed doesn't seem to have any headwinds in terms of fundamentals. So, where I would look to is where fundamentals could be at the tailwind to help offset some of the pressures you're feeling from capital markets, from cost of capital, et cetera. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be immune to pricing. It it doesn't. I can tell you right now, if you took out a $2 billion of industrial real estate, you would not get what you got 60 days ago. I, I just don't believe you could. You would have gotten what you got a year ago. But we've seen that, those big deals, the pressure's there because you can't finance them as efficient. Um, and maybe a cop-out answer, Michael, but I, I truly believe that's going well, go.
6: Just a derivative, and, and then I'll turn it over. But what are your, are your economists or the people at JLL, a lot of folks are, are saying, okay, this is transitory inflation, it's, it's COVID and supply chain, but given demographics and other forces at work, you know, five years from now, we're going to be back to a non-inflation environment. Are these guys throwing darts and guessing these days in response to these questions? What's it like talking to the people at your firm who are guessing on the future of this?
0: Well, I would tell you, it's probably more us talking to global participants that own capital, like yourself and your peers and your partners. And those are the people we're trying to listen to. I mean, yeah, we have our own economists and economists are exactly 50% right. They're 50% right half the time. So that that is just the universe of The economists. and I like reading it, and I read all of the folks that publish information. No one has any idea, but I can tell you that there is a belief that there is a large component of what's happening right now relative to inflationary pressures that are indeed transitory. Now, the definition of transitory from an economic perspective typically means really short-term, a quarter or two. This may be, it sounds ridiculous, long-term transitory, because some of the things we're trying to unravel in the supply chain and retooling the way our So, you know, shipments are coming in and having to find different places to manufacture goods are going to take more than a quarter. But I think some of it is when that world order shifts a little bit and there's some smart companies figure it out, it may be 12 or 18 months. Some of that long term, moderate term transitory, I think, will back up and, you know, the old adage. I mean, I think the what's the best remedy for high prices? Anyone? Less demand, high prices. They're their own worst enemy, right? We talked about it twice here. We talked about what's happening. There's going to be a demand shock when you use 130 or 140 a barrel. You can apply that across any other consumable. I mean, at some point in time, if my wife buys a couch from Restoration Hardware that used to cost $50 to ship and now it costs $500 and that price is now set of $3,000 at $7,000, well, guess what? We may not be buying the couch. So eventually, this this a wash of global liquidity and frankly great fundamentals and, and job uh, employment that has pushed the demand side has to abate, And so I think it's a combination of transitory effects and supply chain issues that will solve themselves moderately and then you just have. Inflation because you had $10 trillion pumped into the global economies in the last 18 months that you got to find a home, I mean both those things are we've never really had this before and again i'm i'm speaking largely from what i'm hearing Michael that's less my opinion.
4: Thank you.
5: Mike. First of all, thank you very much to Mark and Doug. Uh, it's a real estate group, and getting this insight into shipping and oil at that level—that was spoken in dumbed-down real estate language. English was very appreciated. Um, I'll get a quick question for Trey, but Doug and Mark, if y'all want to chime in, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm um, looking we'll back to something Trey you said, which is the debt issues are. Being eaten up by capital demand. And right now, I'm quite certain um, at the same time, at whatever of the day, whether it's in London or in Germany or France or name your country around the globe, they're still having the same conversation. I'm going to use a dirty word called deflation, where we have the um, maybe a flat, uh, a flattening. Possibility of demand because of pricing, but inflationary pressure at the same time. Here's my question based on that Do you see the flight capital from that group that's having this conversation in whatever country saying, all things being equal, I've got to deploy my money. I'm going to go to hard assets. I'm going to go to the dollar. I'm going to go to real estate. Do you see flight capital coming into America and pricing out and replacing domestic capital and holding? cap rates down or effectively pushing pricing up because they still are better off making 6% in America versus what they are 8% or whatever the return on the asset is 10 versus what they could get someplace else. Do you right now, is it the purview of your team that that capital is going to outstrip the debt and chase to America in real estate? to avoid deflationary pressure or concerns?
0: Very complex question. Um, and the short answer is we don't know, but I'll give you a, some anecdotal opinions. Coming off of MIPM, which was last week, a lot of the investors talking about moving here ostensibly want, or a little, a little risk off, if you wanna use that term. So I think there is a chance that some of this global capital can continue to put pressure on the best of the best core assets and keep some of that cost of call it interest rate pressure relative to cap rates abated. So I think we're, we've are we already been in a market in the last two years of sort of the have and the have nots in commercial real estate. I mean, when you could price core industrial for a three cap and a quality retail center at a six and a half cap, that, that delta has never been as great. So I do think that we're going to continue in that kind of environment. I think some of the global capital, I don't think it will outstrip domestic capital, my opinion. I think it will participate alongside because it's a pretty efficient market. They're just not gonna be, they're not gonna be misaligned in that way economically to where they're gonna do things. Um, A complicating factor here that we don't have time to get into and I'm not an expert is we are actually now starting to have hedging issues again. So when you think about offshore capital coming into the US, especially what's going on with the Fed, we're gonna see hedging start to present itself as a problem and it's gonna be, it's gonna dissuade folks in certain countries relative to the dollar to participate. For example, UK is very, in the turn of events in the last 60 days, has become very favorable from a hedging perspective, particularly for North Korea or South Korea. They are pouring money in the UK because there's actually a hedging advantage to going into the pound. That's the opposite in the US. So their money is actually on a relative basis moving out of the US because of hedging costs. So that's why I said it's a complicated question. I I, I think there's a reason why interest rates and cap rates are not positively correlated to -to one-to-one. It's just, it's never been the case. And it has to do with other demand factors and flows of capital, which actually dictate pricing as much as interest rates, but there is a correlation. It's a matter of time before you have four or five, 6% cost of debt capital before you're gonna no longer see three caps on real estate. You just can't have it, but it takes time because of what you said, there's all these other issues that kind of fall into it. So short answer is no, I don't think they're gonna push domestic capital out, but I think they're gonna help keep a lid on some core assets.
2: Great, well, thank you. Mark, Doug, Trey, thanks so much for your time this morning. We're out of time, unfortunately. I wish we had another hour of fascinating discussion, but we've got busy people, so we will be on about our day. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. Thank Uh, you all. We'll see you next week at Market Matters. Thanks, Kim. Hey, thank you all. Have a great day.
1: That's all for today's show and our first CRE Executive Roundtable of the Year. I'd like to thank our guests, Mark Gunnan, Douglas Wheat, and Trey Morsbach for sharing their insights, and we'd also like to recognize and thank the executives who joined the discussion. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and check us out on social media and YouTube. Again, we've linked to everything in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.